Congressional Democrats want to scrap a 200-year-old Senate rule so they can ram through their socialist agenda. They want to nationalize elections, pack the Supreme Court, abolish gun rights, and revive and pass the horrendously inane Build Back Better bill, among other things. And they have to do so quick, because voters are projected to rake them over the coals in November. In this episode, we're discussing the filibuster. I'm Paul Dragu, and this is Freedom is the Cure. So it's back in the news, the filibuster. Leftists blame the traditional Senate tactic for quashing radical anti-police legislation, for hindering pro-illegal immigration legislation, and for failing to reinforce the legality of murdering unborn children. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, in a recent letter to party colleagues, also blamed the arcane Senate rule for his party's inability to protect democracy. He echoes the propaganda point that red states' efforts to secure elections are really voter suppression laws, and they need to be offset by giving the federal government power over elections. But that's not going to be easy. The filibuster has officially existed since 1806, and this isn't the first time it's come under fire. Proponents of the filibuster say it prevents the narrow majority from imposing its will on the minority. Opponents say it obstructs the will of the majority and prevents Congress from getting anything done, as if that's such a horrible thing. I'm talking to my colleagues in the John Birch Research Department, Christian Gomez and Peter Rykowski, about what all this fuss about the filibuster means in today's volatile, no-holds-barred political climate. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me on. So before we get into this, what exactly is the filibuster? Well, the filibuster is a procedure in the U.S. Senate that requires 60 votes in order to end debate on legislation. So if, uh, the, so if the senators want to uh, consider a bill, they need to debate on it, but they can't end the debate and they can't proceed to an actual vote on passing the bill unless they obtain 60 votes to end the debate. When has the filibuster come in, in, uh, in effect? Well, the filibuster has existed for pretty much all of U.S. history since the Constitution's ratification. I mean, as you, as you said, like formally it first came into effect in 1806, but senators were already beginning to use uh, like debates and endless debates in order to stop legislation as early as 1789, which is the same year the Constitution was ratified. So over the various years and centuries, uh, the filibuster eventually became a formal Senate rule. It's been used many times over U.S. history to uh, stop and to stall uh, bills that various senators would disagree with for whatever reason. And uh, now they're talking about obviously getting rid of it, but it seems like there has been at some point there's been a time when Republicans were, were not so crazy about the filibuster, too. So is it one of those things that the party and power, they kind of find as a, as a problem and then it goes back and forth? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, the party in power usually wants to get its agenda passed without any interruption. Yeah. And the filibuster is seen as protecting the interests of the minority. Um, so when you're the party that's in power and you don't have 60 votes to get everything done, which is a pretty large uh, uh, you know, threshold, uh, that can be quite the nuisance to uh, uh, your quest for um, 
getting your agenda passed. We mentioned that the Democrats aim to get what they're looking to do is is pass essentially socialist policies, and it seems like that's kind of become a, a rhetoric. So can we expand a little bit on what policies that they're trying to, to pass? What about those policies makes them socialist? Well, for one, they're not constitutional. That's right. I mean, there's a lot that the Democrats would pass, and I mean, all of them they involve a larger, more centralized federal government with greater centralized control, uh, less individual freedom for you know ordinary citizens, uh, and you know pretty much all of that boils down to that. You know, also you know reducing American national sovereignty and paving the way for a one-world socialistic government. Yeah, when the John Birch Society says socialism, we don't just throw that out there as a uh, as a dirty term. Like, oh, look at you, stinky socialist yeah. over there. Like, we use socialist. Uh, uh, we define it simply as uh, excess government power. In other words, empowering the federal government beyond the limitations of the Constitution, having a large centralized government. A perfect example, of course, Soviet Union, governments of Eastern Europe, North Korea, China, or the federal government or the national government of those states could do practically whatever they wanted. They had no real limitations mm -hmm. on the power of the state there. So that's how we define socialism in the John Birch Society. In fact, the Communist Party has repeatedly stated that their goal, it is the objective of every member of the Communist Party USA, to build socialism in America. For the communists, even though their goal may be this utopian society with no government, eventually no class, to get there, they recognize that they need massive government power to do things that can only be done through government to redistribute uh, wealth and change society by force. And a lot of these bills that we're talking about here, uh, the Build Back Better Act, for example, is a perfect example of government socialism. It, it's, it's a massive goodie bag of all these unconstitutional provisions, ways to empower the federal government be way beyond its limitations, uh, moving us in the direction of a permanent uh, of a permanent uh, federal state where the federal government could virtually do whatever they want. And if you get rid of the filibuster, it's not going to end at the Build Back Better Act. It's not going to just end at the John uh, Lewis you know, uh, voting rights bill. They're, they would proceed to pass every Democratic objective. Like you mentioned gun control. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's no bill, major bill that I'm aware of right now, but there probably is a bill that you're familiar with because you know all the bills. But uh, the... Uh, the assault weapons ban, so-called, right from the 1990s, if they didn't have the filibuster, you, you, you could probably bet that the, almost every Democrat, may, perhaps, maybe not Joe Manchin, I don't know, but almost every Democrat would probably vote for that, uh, and Kamala Harris would then come in to break the tie. So if they didn't have the filibuster, the Democrats would pass everything on a basis of 50 plus 1. Well, in 2013, the U.S. Senate actually voted, uh, 54 senators voted in favor of a background check bill, which, you know, would have massively increased the federal government's ability to stop people from owning guns, you know, blatantly violating the Second Amendment. Fifty-four senators voted for that, but the bill didn't pass because it needed 60 votes with the filibuster. So that's, that, that's one example of the filibuster preventing unconstitutional socialistic legislation from passing. You know, so there's that. You know, there are the various election bills that the Democrats want to pass. Uh, there's amnesty for illegal aliens. You know, once we start allowing all these people coming in illegally, you know, these people don't share American values. They don't 
have the same love for the Constitution that many, the most Americans have, you know, so it'll radically reshape, yeah. uh, you know, everything about this country. So, you know, if the filibuster is uh, done away with legislation like that, there would be a much higher chance of that passing. Now, you had mentioned uh, Joe Manchin. When this conversation comes up about the filibuster, Joe Manchin comes up. And uh, we obviously have no way of knowing what Joe Manchin is going to do. But explain how they would, how, how to get rid of the filibuster. Because while you need, the filibuster requires 60 votes. And that's in the, just in the Senate. I, you know, there's a lot of people, I think, listening, but perhaps who don't, who don't know. This is just a Senate rule. But anyway, um, how, would you, how would they get rid of What's what's the road to getting rid of the filibuster? All you would need is a simple majority of senators to uh, remove the filibuster. And over the past 10 years, the filibuster has been weakened. In 2013, the Democrats uh, voted, just a simple majority voted to end the filibuster for executive branch nominees and for lower court judicial nominees, everyone except the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. So those nominees since 2013 could be confirmed with only 51 votes, or even, or even just a plurality. Uh, and then uh, in 2017, uh, the Senate removed the filibuster for the Supreme Court nominees. So, you know, it's already starting to uh, be degraded. Yeah, so you've had the Democrats degrade it, uh, like Peter mentioned back in 2013, and the Republicans do so in when they're in power. So both sides are a little guilty for uh, uh, weakening that. This is what's called the nuclear option. And what the Democrats are talking about now is not just the nuclear option for, you know, for nominees for the, the courts. I mean, they already, Biden has had more nominees to the courts confirmed by the Senate than any president, I believe, in American history up to this point in his presidency, more so than even Trump did in his uh, first uh, year in office because they, they, they have the same old rule in place. They have the you know, as long as 50 or 51, you know, a plurality of Democrats vote in favor mm -hmm. um, of the nominee that Biden has selected, they're being put on the courts very easily. So what, what they, what they want to do now is just uh, end the filibuster for everything so they can pass legislative changes, you know, make these bills into law. This sounds like it would make everything more partisan. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. It, it's pretty sad because when you look at the history of the, you know, the— the filibuster, it, it's, it, was, it seems as though it's been seldomly used. I mean, it's, it's been used sporadically throughout American history. But it seems like, you know, the, the, I guess what I'm trying to say is that both political parties respected the ability of the filibuster. They may not, they not have agreed with their opponent using it, but they kind of kept in place that this is uh, required because both parties knew eventually your party will be the majority, I'll be in the minority, and, I, and I'm going to want to have this tool in my, in my toolkit, so to speak. And now things are gone so partisan that uh, pe people only see the here and now, yeah. and the Democrats, they want to get rid of this. But if they, you know, you know, if they do get rid of it and they pass all these radical changes, um, they're not going to like it when perhaps the Republicans, let's say hypothetically, take the U.S. Senate and they say, okay, we're going to get rid of the filibuster on everything and we're just going to get our agenda passed through and maybe we'll start repealing some of your stuff too. Uh, so it, it really can't work both ways, but it, it's a path we shouldn't go down, I would say. What, well, what about the fact that say they pass, I mean, somehow they get to it and they pass, for instance, Build Back Better or the, you know, they nationalize elections as we learned with Obamacare, 
it's so hard to undo when, when these things are passed. So that's all I'm saying, I guess, is it's not very comforting, <laughs> yeah. you know, saying it's like, OK, so they would pass all this stuff. And then when Republicans, assuming they would get back in power, then then I don't think undoing a lot of that. It seems really difficult. I don't think they would have any uh, desire to undo stuff anyway. Yeah, Republicans have a terrible track record of following <laughs> the Constitution, unfortunately. But they could threaten Democrats with, with the possibility of repealing stuff. Which uh, is what Mitch McConnell was doing, right? He's He, he said that's exactly what he says. Well, Mitch McConnell has said that if the Democrats do away with the filibuster, if they um, weaken it or get rid of it, that mm-hmm. they would scorch the Senate, scorch the earth, and put, put everything to a, to a standstill. I don't exactly know how he would specifically do that, but that's what he said he would do. The idea that opponents of the filibuster, one of the things they keep ranting about is that it gets in the way of government uh, working and getting things Mm -hmm. done. The way of efficiency and democracy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, wasn't this government designed to be inefficient? Isn't that the point? Yeah, it was. I mean, we have separation of powers, both horizontal and vertical, in order to prevent government from overreaching and overreacting and getting out of control. Yeah. So by, you know, undoing the filibuster would be just yet another step towards, you know, democracy and towards, you know, this tyrannical government that's increasingly taking more and more control over, you know, the everyday lives of people. And the separation of powers is one of the best ways to uh, prevent that from happening. Yeah, the Founding Fathers did not believe in uh, efficient, streamlined government. They believed in... uh protecting the individual rights from tyranny. That's why there's the powers are separated. If they, if they weren't, you know, the, the alternative would be have all the powers vested in one branch of government, mm-hmm. then that would be the sort of monarchical branch, if you will. But that's not what the founders wanted, and for good reasons. Yeah, and the Senate itself was designed to temper what the House wanted, you know, because the House was uh, directly elected in the, in the individual districts, but the Senate, senators were originally elected by the state legislators. And until the 17th Amendment. Right. You know, and that's really a big feature of the mixed government of our country, where, you know, the House is, has more of a trappings of a democratic system. You know, the president is more of the trappings of a monarchic system. And then the Senate is sort of in between, uh, you know, tempering both of those. So, uh, you know, we're really... Uh, getting away from that, which is unfortunate. Yeah, the whole part of the the reason for the U.S. Senate is for the states to be able to rein in the federal governments directly through their ambassadors to the federal government called the U.S. Senators. Um, That's the way to rein in the federal government that that the Founding Fathers actually gave in the Constitution, not the Article 5 Convention, which is a wholly different topic, but uh, it's worth mentioning. While I was looking stuff up, I noticed that the longest filibuster was was I think 24 hours was it Strom Thurmond I, I believe is 24 hours and so what uh, how, how do how do how do senators filibuster they just get up there and, and just talk and read anything how, how does uh, are there any rules well oftentimes they would give speeches uh, my understanding is and under the current rules it's no longer necessary for them to do that uh, now it's just they uh, will, I'm not sure exactly how they, they'll do it, but they don't necessarily have to give a speech. But in the past, they have, and those speeches have been pretty long at times. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they've read, I think some have read, like, phone books. Yeah, uh, phone books, cookbooks, <laughs> all sorts of 
weird things. It's uh, it's it's fascinating. Although it takes it takes a lot of willpower, because imagine you're standing up there and you mm-hmm. you have to use the services, so to speak. Yeah, uh, yeah. you got to eat and so forth. So you have to forego that uh, if you wish to continue to filibuster, uh, at least when it comes to it on an individual basis. Yeah, yeah. Well, like like I, w- I mentioned, Strom's argument before. Apparently. What he did is he he dehydrated beforehand. Yeah, there's a little, there's a few tricks there. Yeah, he did. He went through a, a lot of uh, he went through a lot to make sure that he could withstand. I, that's almost athletic, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what what uh, what these what some of these guys go through. But we were talking about how government's supposed to be uh, inefficient. I was just I was just thinking is like seldom does Congress pass something limiting the power. Uh, the power of and, and the influence uh, of government. Uh, it's kind of, it's, it's just a comment. I think it's, can you guys think of of legislation passed that actually limits government? <laughs> That's a hard one. I, I'd have to think about that one for a while. Well, I, I guess I'm, I'm sure just, there's something I can come up with, but I can't think of anything off the top of my head. I, I just wish that would be more of a thing. It's like, uh, you know, they said during the Trump administration, there were more regulations that were, uh, that were done away with than that were created. And that was more of an executive uh, rule that they themselves yeah. put in place that wasn't because Congress passed a bill saying, well, if you're going to have any regulations of every one you implement, you have to repeal two or three. So that was more of an executive decision. But right. uh, I mean, if you look at the votes in the Senate, you'll have, for example, Rand Paul will propose occasionally an amendment to a bill uh, calling for uh, balancing the budget. Within like ten years, five years, we're making like a modest one or three percent cut mm-hmm. to the federal budget, or let's spend as much this year as we did way back when like Obama's last term wasn't you know last year in office kind of thing, and something like that, which isn't even that major for though for the Democrats and even the Republicans in power, they look at that and like well we, that's that's too much of a cut, we can't do that, yeah. and those m- super mild modest proposals of Rand Paul's have seldom ever been. Uh, it voted in favor of, so I cannot imagine someone saying, "This isn't here's a bill to actually reduce the power of government or limit uh, the the power of the." Pre- I mean, there's been attempts with the with the, um, there's been attempts to reduce the power of the president's ability to make war, the War Powers Act, but in reality, there's there's some constitutional questions with that because uh, they they allow the president to still use military force uh, within like a certain was it thirty days. Something like that. Something like, yeah. Before you know, we're, we're going to the Senate. By that time, the theoretically, a president could do a lot of damage and, and force us into a position where we have to use military, uh, have have to have a military response potentially. Mm-hmm. So uh, some of these bills to limit the president or the federal government uh, usually have some sort of loophole that allows them to continue doing things unconstitutionally. And it also illustrates the importance of electing members to Congress who will actually respect and follow the Constitution. I mean, a big reason why they violate is because they'll, you know, they pass all these ridiculous bills and then the electorate doesn't actually vote them out. You know, they keep getting elected over and over again. Yeah. So it really shows, you know, the importance of, you know, educating people to actually elect members that will follow the Constitution. Well, that's a good point. And, you know, there's all these polls now saying that Democrats are going to get slaughtered in November, and obviously they're trying to pass a lot of this agenda before then. Um, I'm a little frustrated that there's so many voters who obviously are going to change or the way they vote because we saw this coming. 
it wasn't it wasn't hard uh, to pinpoint like this is where it was going. These these policies, these agendas. This is uh, this is what they wanted to do. It's it's uh, you know the, whether everything they do is, is not necessarily a surprise. Uh, except I don't know. Is there anything that catches you guys by surprise by some of the policies they're trying to? For instance, we talked about the the gun legislation. I think it was proposed. Was it sponsored by Sheila Jackson? That's that's been dead for a while. But that's not necessarily surprising. They're always coming up with something to to restrict gun rights. But are any of these policies, these this legislation that the uh, Democrats are proposing, any of them take you by surprise? Well, I mean, as as we go, you know. Year by year, it seems like it's getting more and more extreme. I mean, this year they introduced legislation to ban unvaccinated people from getting into an air, into an airplane, you know, and that I wasn't seeing that, <laughs> coming, see that until, coming until until this year. Uh, but you didn't see that coming in November, like you didn't think that was something that could happen. Well, n- November like 2020. Yeah, I mean, it's just not something you th- you just don't think about it until oh. you know because they'll they'll take. You know these massive, um, you know massive steps, you know towards socialism. You, know, you don't see it coming, you know, and then that's really their strategy for Im- for implementing their agenda. Because then, uh, you know, conservatives and Republicans will be you know very shocked, you know. So then the Democrats will take two steps forward and then one step back after the backlash, but they still take they still they're still going forward. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, by November, having seen and lived through through lockdowns. Uh, I, I I had no doubt that that they they could and they would mandate vaccine. I, I didn't. Nothing surprises me anymore. What surprises me is that they're just not running around like naked communists. That, yeah, that, that's how I feel too. I what surprises me is how far they haven't gone yet. Right. Um, because if the deal, if come November of this year, 2022. When election day happens, I think it's a foregone conclusion. I mean, I, I'll, I'll be Mr. Prophet. I prophesy and foresee the Democrats losing the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate. Whether I'm right or wrong, we'll find out. But that's what I think is going to happen. At least at the election where today, it seems that way, um, that, that they'll lose control of both chambers. And the Democrats, I believe they know that. Pelosi knows that. Schumer lo- knows that. In fact, they're probably planning what their career is going to be post yeah. Post Congress, because I think I think Pelosi's going to resign if she loses the speakership. I don't I don't think she'll stay for another time at tenure as minority leader. The progressives are eager to take the the, the leader of the Democratic Party away from her once she's no longer speaker. Um, so with the Democrats knowing that, I I predict that this year they're going to try hard, and they've made the deadline right. January seventeenth, their deadline to get rid of the filibuster and make substantial changes so they can get their agenda passed because they know that if they don't get anything passed this year, they lose that window. They already know they're going to lose the election. So this is the year to get something done. And, I mean, when we think about President Obama, the first legislation that comes to people's minds is Obamacare, which he got in that second year of his first term, right before the slaughter that mm-hmm. came in terms of the Republican and the Tea Party taking over the House. Was it like at House. midnight or something in the dead of December? Yeah, so so with regards to all this stuff now, this is the Democrats' only chance to pass this stuff. Because if and when a Republican Congress comes, the ability to pass the far, far progressive AOC House Progressive Caucus approved agenda that that window just totally closes. So this is their chance for the hard Marxist policies of the left. 
and I suspect they're going to probably try to get one of those done, at least the voting rights one, because that's the one that allows them to, you know, if they get that through, then they can potentially maybe somehow, you know, finagle the elections in their favor, perhaps maybe keep one of the branches and give them yet another day to pass mm. the, uh, to work on implementing their far leftist agenda. So that one's super, super key. That's the what, HR1 and HR4, the, the two voting bills. That's what uh, Chuck Schumer emphasizes in his letter. It's like, got to protect voting rights and oh, yeah. democracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they really, that's, they're hoping that uh, they can manipulate, I guess, you know, get people on board and, and get support and, and then harass, harass those who aren't on board. I mean, uh, they say they're talking to Mansion now. Obviously, they're going to be working on Mansion and Kristen Cinema. Is it cinema? Cinema. Yeah. Um, what do you guys think? What are the chances that uh, that they're going to get these to churn, or has Joe Manchin had enough? <laughs> it's so hard to tell. It's hard to tell with Manchin. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you look at his uh, his Freedom Index scores, they're they're terribly dismal. He's, yeah. There's, there's no question that that he's not a conservative. Well, I mean, yeah. that's the one thing you see in all these articles, and I know Peter hates it, and I don't like it either. You look at the Hill, Politico, New York Times, et cetera, et cetera. They refer to Joe Manchin as the Democrats' conservative colleague uh, repeatedly. He's the conservative Democrat. And look at his Freedom Index or his scorecard, and uh, he's voted with the Democrats on every major piece of legislation. The only time he seems conservative is when he prevents something from being voted on. But his voting record of what he actually votes on is always pretty far left. So he's no conservative. If he's a conservative, then... I don't know what we are here at the Jumper I don't society. think any, anyone <laughs> confuses. I don't think anyone accuses him of being a conservative. But it's still a good thing that he's he's holding he's he's holding the line on this for now. Uh, it's it's hard to tell where we're going. Obviously, we have no no way of knowing. So what what's to be done about this? What the people listening and uh, how do we go about what what sort of actions you know related to this can can people take so we can be better off? Well, first and foremost, everyone should call their senator, well, two senators, and tell them, you know, don't don't abolish the filibuster, don't weaken it, don't create loopholes for it. You know, in fact, you know, if you're going to make any changes, make it stronger. You know, go back to how we were uh, before. You know, it, it was weakened in the past ten years. You know, then second, tell them to oppose the various bills that they would pass if the filibuster were abolished. You know, like the various election bills, the John Lewis. Voting Rights Act, the For the People, For the People Act, mm-hmm. the Build Back Better Act, the various gun control and uh, legalizing illegals, amnesty bills, things like that. And we and have legislative alerts for all We have a lot of legislative alerts on pretty much all those bills so that's and even sh- more. Yep, that's, that's the short-term solution. And the long-term solution to that, I would say, is uh, everyone needs to uh, get copies of uh, Robert Brown's Constitution is a solution series because ultimately what we really need is to elect constitutionalist office and that is a great tool that we've mentioned numerous times in previous podcasts to help educate fellow voters, fellow members of the electorate. This is what the Constitution says and stands for and so we can have members of Congress at both the House and Senate who reflect the Constitution and uh, that knowledge of the Founding Fathers. And that's how we end all this craziness by electing a a constitutionalist supermajority, which that sounds crazy to elect any kind of supermajority, but the way things are headed, we, we definitely have a 
a big government supermajority at this point. When you have, we think about right. how many of the Republicans are not constitutionalists, maybe there's two constitutionalists or maybe three that maybe lean that way, that lean that way in the Senate. If you think about, you know, Mike Lee, Rand Paul, and Ted Cruz as leaning uh, constitutionalists. Ted Cruz is the debatable one, perhaps. Uh, but nevertheless, those are the three best in the Senate. And that's three. What about all the, all the other Republicans? They agree with the Democrats in terms of favoring big government, just their brand of it. Uh, I mean, I saw an article saying, a- after the whole thing spilled out with uh, Joe Manchin saying on Fox News that he's not going to vote for Build Back Better, there were articles uh, that came out on- online, you probably saw them too, Peter, where they were suggesting that Mitt Romney, of all people, who was you know Republican nominee for president back in 2012, ran against you know, the ticket that included Joe Biden in that election, uh, that he could be the saving grace for the Biden agenda because he's one of the more liberal members of the Republican Party in the U.S. Senate. So if he, imagine if he was to join uh, with uh, supporting like Build Back Better. I don't see that happening per se, yeah. but who knows? Politics can make for very interesting bedfellows, they say. Also, we shouldn't uh, just be focusing on the federal government, but also the state and local levels. And if we really, um, you know, educate our state and local officials to use nullification to nullify unconstitutional federal laws, you know, that'll be a good way for pushing back against the federal government, you know, if the filibusters abolish and if they pass you know, all these ridiculous bills that they are threatening the past. That's the best safeguard right there, nullification, because if, if they pass Build Back Better, let's say, they get rid of the, bill, the, the they get rid of the filibuster, pass Build Back Better, pass For the People Act, pass John Lewis Voting Rights Act, and all the other bad stuff. It'll come down to what the states do, whether they abide by those unconstitutional laws or whether they uh, just go along with it. So um, it will be up to the states to say no. And again, I'm going to mention that Article 5 thing again, because uh, there are some people who will say Article 5 is a solution, and that's just one big dangerous reset button. We don't need to do that. What we need to do is have the states nullify and say, if you do pass Build Back Better, our state is not going to implement or go along with any of the provisions in it. If you pass the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, we're not going to allow your federal takeover of our state's election process. We're going to keep things... Uh, as they were, or we're going to abide by the U.S. Constitution, essentially, not by these unconstitutional laws. And that's where the real battle for freedom and liberty uh, uh, will will be waged at the state level, because at the federal level, we're we're seeing things uh, come apart uh, currently. Every podcast that we do, it seems like, ends up at this point. And that is the... I was thinking the same thing. (laughs) That is the essence of what we do. And it's such a tall order. And I like that you always bring it back to that because it always, that's where it always comes. We would not be here. We would not be here if we had more than three senators who understood and were constitutional. Uh, It's going to take time. Um, But I also think that people are, are getting it. I, th- I, I can't imagine that there having been in mine and you guys' lifetime a bigger wake-up call than what is happening now. I've spoken to people, you know, twice my age and whatnot, reporters and whatnot. I was like, have you ever seen it this radicalized, uh, you know, especially a, a White House administration this radicalized? You know, because sometimes we may lose context or whatnot. We may, we, us being young, we may not know that, well, there was this time in history it, People are saying the same thing, and the sky is falling. But people, are, these these reporters who have been around, they're like, I've never seen it like this. This truly is an un-American, radical government that that we have. And uh, the long-term plan, like you said, is 
is to to get informed, to get an, uh, an informed electorate on the Constitution. And uh, we have great resources for that. Like you said, we have a six-part series. Uh, the Constitution is the solution. Uh, we have legislative alerts to keep up with the current uh, legislation out there. And, and there's quite a bit of it. I don't know how you do it, Peter. How, when do you sleep, man? <laughs> <laughs> Who says he sleeps? <laughs> right. And I think we're working on expanding, right, what, what we're looking at, what we cover. Yep. Yeah, we're, we do legislative alerts for federal government, you know, state level for all 50 states, yeah. individual alerts for each one. Uh, we do we do a uh, lot. Yeah. So there's no better time for people to really, really get active. We totally, we, we think you should join the John Birch Society. That's, uh, right. that's for sure. Uh, we got the infrastructure. Uh, we have chapters from coast to coast and uh, more are popping up on a pretty regular basis. So any last words, guys? Well, I just want to say that uh, I, I know it, Things can sound a little gloomy sometimes. I say, well, we got three senators that, you know, lean constitutionalists and so forth. But if you think about it, um, you know, b- before Obamacare, uh, before the 2010 election that I mentioned earlier, there was no Rand Paul in the Senate. There was no Mike Lee in the Senate. There was no Ted Cruz in the Senate. Look at the, the House Freedom Caucus was developed because of the, as a backlash to Obamacare and the socialist policies of the Democratic Party at that time. People like Jim Jordan, you know, Thomas Massey, really holding the line. So the numbers of real conservatives in the House and Senate is growing. Maybe they're not that that huge, but the House Freedom Caucus is doing a lot of good work to their credit. And uh, this is more so than what you could say about in the 90s when maybe you had one conservative U.S. Senator, Jesse Helms. So things are certainly uh, looking better. And that's where our, our work comes in. And someone like Donald Trump wouldn't have been elected on a nationalist uh, pro-sovereignty, anti-globalist, uh, make America great platform in general without the John Birch Society really planting that seed of educating the electorate about the importance of our sovereignty and, uh, and the socialist direction we're going, why we get to turn around. So that's all credit to JBS, I would say. And uh, I, I hope to see uh, uh, more and better things come from our efforts in the next uh, you know, 60 years of JBS. I'm excited to be part of the JBS. Obviously, I wouldn't be here. I'm going to try to stop tooting our own horn in about a few minutes, but I think it's important because uh, we've put in all this work, and then the, uh, the generations of birchers before us have put in all this work, and we're seeing the fruits. They're growing. They're out there. They're in the New Republic. They they published an article said uh, we all live in a John Birch Society world. Now, obviously, that's not true, but and obviously, it's not supposed to be flat. It's an exaggeration, but hopefully, one day it will be a fact. But they're at least acknowledging, and they're not the only ones. They're acknowledging that we that we are partly responsible for for, for what's happening. Yeah. Obviously, in their eyes, it's a terrible thing because uh, uh, we're destroying democracy. <laughs> you know, wh- whatever else uh, that we're doing. Obviously, we, we yeah. Joe Manchin's one of their own senators. <laughs> so it's a great time. Uh, it's a great time to, to be alive and, and to get active. And we encourage everyone to, to get active. Well, folks, there you have it. So please make sure to contact your senators and urge them to oppose ending or weakening the filibuster. Also, tell them to oppose any legislation that can't be passed without removing the filibuster. And don't forget to visit JBS.org for up-to-date information and action items on the most pressing legislation and issues. Our country is at crossroads, and we all need to get involved.